it brings for us as modern people the question of if God is who God says he is, if he is love, if he is good, if he is just, then how do we reconcile this? And so that's the question that I think is before all of us today. As we get into the flood narrative, we're going to seek to to answer that question throughout. How do we see God's goodness, his love, his justice in the flood story? But I also want to put before you that really what we're learning here from Moses is the ABCs of salvation. And so that's going to be our three points today. What do you need to be saved? Well, you need an ark, you need a baptism, and you need creation (laughs) 2.0. So if you're able, if you're willing, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read chapter 7, verse 1, and then pray and then get into it. And I would encourage you just to have your Bible open, have this scripture open on your phone. We're going to be in and out of it throughout this whole sermon, and all of the scripture is not going to be up on the screen. So hear the word of the Lord. And before we do that, I just want to say we stand when we read God's word here at Crosspoint as a recognition that we stand under the authority of God's word, and we also stand on the firm foundation of God's word. Like this is the only firm foundation in reality that we have to stand on. So hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that as modern people, this is a hard text for us. So we ask for extra help this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Spirit of God, would you specifically and powerfully impress upon us what we need to know about you and about ourselves through this flood narrative. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to take what we learn and to know how to apply it to our lives. We pray all of this for our good and also that you might get glory, you might get credit, you might get the honor from our lives. Pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So what do you need to be saved? First and foremost, you need an ark of refuge. And this is what we see in chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. The first of the ABCs of salvation is that you need an ark of refuge. Now, when we talk about salvation, it's helpful for us to talk about not only what we are saved from, but also what we are saved to. And so to begin with, we just have to ask the question, what are Noah and his family, what are they saved from? There's a very basic answer to this question that I think probably all of you could answer. Anyone, where are they saved from? The water, the flood. Absolutely. That's very clear in this passage. I think also, though, if we look at the nuance in this passage, and specifically when we look to the New Testament, to allow the New Testament to help us interpret this passage. 
we see that, yes, they're saved from the flood waters of judgment, but they also are saved from the wickedness and the corruption of the generation around them. We saw this even just a moment ago, a hint of it in verse one, right? God looked and he saw that Noah is righteous before him, what? In this generation. And so we're going to look here in a moment at 2 Peter. But before we get there, uh, 2 Peter, he's going to point back, he's going to look back on this and he's going to point out that, hey, Noah and God kind of got this partnership going on. (laughs) And that in and of itself is a beginning to, an, an answer that's a beginning to the question of, How is God good? How is God loving? How is God just when we look at the flood narrative? Because all of the cultures around them, Jamie mentioned this last week, all of them had their own flood narratives. And they went something like, there's this God, he gets angry, he throws a temper tantrum, he's going to flood the world. And all of their stories have an individual or a family who then say, well, that's bad. Maybe we should do something about it. And so the people then create an ark to save humanity from the anger of the God. That's their story, all these other nations. So when Israel would read Genesis chapter seven, it would be like a light bulb going off of, oh wait, this wasn't Noah's idea? This was God's, God's idea? And God is actually partnering with Noah to save those who will be saved? So we just have to recognize as modern people, we come to this and we feel the, we feel uncomfortable and we're like, how is God just? How is God loving? How is God good? For ancient readers, they would have read this and said, look at how gracious God is. <laughs> look at how good God is. Look at how loving God is. Now, second Peter, go ahead and turn with me there. We're going to look at chapter two, starting in verse four. So, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. All right, so the context here is that you have these false teachers who are leading people in the church away from Jesus. And people are asking the question, like, will they be judged? And will God be faithful to take care of his people and to bring judgment on these who are leading them away? This is what Peter says. That's how he responds. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. So this is back to Genesis 6 last week, right? That Jamie preached on, that that the sons of God, fallen angels, left heaven. They came to earth. They married the daughters of men. And then the Nephilim were born, these like crazy giants that were wreaking havoc all over the earth, right? So that's what Peter's talking about here. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. So that word herald, we don't use it often. It can also be translated a preacher of righteousness. That's how we would use the word. So remember what Jamie mentioned last week that that some scholars believe that between God declaring the divine judgment is coming and the actual act of divine judgment, that a lot of scholars think that there was 120 years of Noah building this ark. But also we see here, Peter tells us, not only is he building the ark, he's also preaching. (laughs) 
He's telling people, come, come join us. So there's this idea, and we're going to see this again in Peter in a little bit. There's this idea that, that yes, God is bringing judgment, but God is also bringing plenty of opportunity for people to partner with him and to be saved. So keep on looking at it with me. So, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Looking down to verse nine, if God did these things, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Can I get an amen? (laughs) God knows. So isn't this interesting? Peter's taking this flood narrative, something that makes us really uncomfortable. And he's saying, hey, this story actually should be a great comfort to you. Because as you are in trials, as you are in suffering, as you are thinking, how long, oh Lord, he tells us that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we would say an equal and hearty amen. Because as much as we want love, as much as we want a God of love, do you not also want justice? Think about the moments when you have experienced oppression, injustice. Think of the moments when someone you love have been taken advantage of. Does your heart not say, come Lord Jesus? (laughs) Think about what's going on in Israel, right? We look at all of those injustices all over our world. Think about the injustice of oppression and violence in our world. Do we not cry, come Lord Jesus? Come to do what? Come bring justice. Make it right, Lord. And Peter tells us here that that is exactly what God is doing, and he's doing it in partnership with Noah. So that's what he's saving them from. He's saving them from the floodwaters of judgment. He's also saving them from this wicked generation that could corrupt them, could kill them. Who knows what could happen there, right? God's saying, I will stay true to my promise in Genesis 3.15, that from the offspring of Eve, I will bring a son who will crush the head of the serpent. How can that happen if humanity destroys itself? (laughs) So God preserves Noah and his family. He saves them from that. What does he save them to? Verses 2 to 16 tell us. I'm not going to read these verses, but I'm just going to give you a summary of them. You can go back and look at them later. And these verses, they give us two accounts of them entering the ark, which is kind of odd when you think about it. Like it talks about them entering the ark with the animals. And then Moses tells us the same thing again. So you're like, why are you doing that? Well, there's some clues here. The first time in chapter uh, 7, verses 2 to 10, that first time we get all of this temple language. We get all of this priestly language. So uh, when Moses talks about Noah going into the ark with the animals, he talks about clean and unclean animals again and again and again. So for Moses, who's writing this after the tabernacle has been built, after the priestly order has come about, an ancient reader would hear that clean and unclean animals coming in, and they immediately would have thought temple, priest. And interestingly enough, Jamie will get into this next week, but what's the first thing Moses does once they get on the dry land? 
Does anybody remember? He makes a sacrifice <laughs> like a priest. So there's this sense in where God is saving them from judgment, from corruption, from wickedness. He's also saving them to this priestly work to partner with God and to proclaim the ways of God to all of their offspring thereafter. So then they tell the story again. Moses tells it again in verses 11 to 16. And this time there's not that clean and unclean language, but there's tons of references to Genesis chapters one and two. So you see language like each animal of its kind. You see language talking about the livestock, the beast, the creeping things, the birds of the air. That's all like direct references to Genesis 1 and 2. You even see this uh, language of male and female. And then there's this idea even within it of, you know, uh, Adam is naming the animals and they're all coming to him. And so in the same way, like all these animals come to Noah and then they're there on the ark. And what's happening? Well, the animals are not eating one another, but they're all living in perfect harmony. So, so the ark is not only this picture of a temple, it's also this picture of a new Eden. It's as if God is turning back the effects of sin and death in the world, even if just for a few moments here in this floating Eden. And so we'll get more into this in a few minutes, but uh, Noah and his family, they're not only called to a priestly work, they're also called to the Great Commission, to, to this, this commission work with God to partner with him into making the world amazing, what we all are meant to do. So friends, how is God calling you to partner with him? What's the labor the work that God has given you to do, that he's saying, partner with me and make your sphere of influence beautiful. Where is God calling you to work to turn back effects of sin and death in the fall? Where is God calling you to priestly work? Because guess what? Peter also is the guy who said, hey, the church, we're the priesthood of believers. <laughs> So who is it in your life that needs to, just like Noah, you need to preach a message of good news, a message of salvation, a message of deliverance? Who needs to hear that, yes, a day of judgment is coming, but also there is salvation for those who will accept it? The ABCs of salvation. First, you need an ark of refuge to be saved. Second, you need baptism through judgment. We see this in chapter 7, verses 17 to 24. Uh, we're going to get into this and just read this whole section because it's important. Uh, so I do want to say, though, before we talk about the baptism, I think it's helpful to talk about the judgment, okay? So the part we're uncomfortable with. Everybody ready? Let's buckle up. Let's just do it. Sound good? You have no choice. So here we go. I guess you can walk out. That's always an option. All right. So chapter 7, starting in verse 17. I want you to listen for two things here. The first thing I want you to listen for is how water is personified as a warrior. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to hear is these themes of decreation. Okay, so remember back in Genesis chapter one, verses one to two, God created the earth and it was with form and without form or void. And what does verse two then say? That the spirit of God hovered over the 
waters of the earth, and then creation comes, right? So listen for themes of decreation here. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them with 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died, then moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Pretty heavy, right? I mean, we read this and it's just, just, it just weighs heavy on the chest, maybe feel it in your gut. And I just want to say that I think it's supposed to, right? So when we're uncomfortable, we can often shy away from things. And I I don't think that's what God wants. He obviously put this in scripture for us, for our good, for our instruction. So we need to learn how to sit with what's uncomfortable so that we can hear what God is wanting to say to us. I think the first thing to say about this, and by the way, FYI, this point might be a little longer than the other ones. Promise we're not going to be here for three hours, okay? Uh, I think the first thing to say about this is Genesis 7 comes after Genesis 6, right? So Genesis 7 is a divine response to the cosmic rebellion that we see in chapter 6. I think a lot of times when we think about the flood, we don't quite process how bad it was. I mean, remember chapter six, you've got these fallen angels, you've got rebellion in heaven. I mean, even think back to before that in Genesis one to two, God created mankind to live in harmony with him, heaven and earth united, God walking in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. How beautiful, right? Sin separates all of them, breaks apart all of God's intended order. And then in Genesis chapter six, you have these angels rebelling against God in heaven. And what do they do? They come to earth and marry the daughters of men and have these giant babies that cause all kinds of havoc. And literally you've got angelic beings living with people saying, let's rebel against the living God. Even in that passage that we saw earlier in 2 Peter, right? Noah's preaching to this generation, repent, come, 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 be saved. And no one comes. 
We're going to see in a moment about God's patience in the days of Noah. So, so God gives them chance after chance after chance. And all of humanity, except for Noah's family, is just giving God the middle finger and saying, we don't want to follow you. We want to do this our way. You know, I think when we think about the flood, we often think about it in terms of like, God is doing this horrible thing to people who don't want it to be done to them. We downplay God's goodness and we kind of elevate our goodness maybe more than we should. (laughs) And this is really important for us to be talking about because if we're uncomfortable with Genesis 7, with the flood narrative and questioning God's goodness, love, and justice, then that means we will naturally be uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus's second coming. And God, are you good, just, and loving to bring that final judgment? And that's exactly where Peter goes in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter's interesting out of all the New Testament authors. He references the flood more than any of them. Read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and it's like flood, 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 flood. He's always talking about the flood. I'm not going to read this, but you can write down 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. And that's the passage where people are saying like, when is Jesus coming back? He said he would come back. Why is he waiting so long? Which is comical because it was like 50 years, you know, like <laughs> since Jesus had ascended to heaven and people are like, why is God so slow to fulfill his promises? Come on, God, what are you doing? And Peter says, God's not slow. Do you remember God's patience in the days of Noah? when the angels rebelled against him and humanity rebelled. Do you remember God's patience then? In the same way, God is patient now. (laughs) To the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. And it's not that he's slow in fulfilling his promise. It's that his heart of hearts is he wants as many to be saved as possible. So he waits. so that as many will repent, they'll come to him. That's the way we should read the flood narrative. God, in essence, in his ultimate wisdom, he, he allotted the amount of time that as many who would come could come. And only Noah and his kids come. Again, I think we downplay God's goodness. We elevate our goodness. Um, I love the way Tim Mackey of the Bible Project talks about judgment and the flood and the rest of the Bible and the final judgment. He, he goes to talking about an uncomfortable doctrine, which is the doctrine of hell. And I will be the first to say, it's a doctrine that makes me uncomfortable. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually once wrote, if I could do away with any doctrine in the Christian tradition, I'd get rid of hell. <laughs> But Lewis went on to say, but if I'm going to be faithful to Scripture, then I have to deal with the fact that it's clearly taught. I have to wrestle with this. And we do too. Tim Mackey, though, he talks about how hell, in an orthodox view, that it is a place. It's a place of punishment for those who rebel against God and will not repent. He goes on to say, it's not only a place, though, it is also a power at work in the world. It's the power of sin. It's the power of destruction. It's the power of oppression. It's the power of death. 
And that's what was going on in Noah's day. That it's almost as if because of people's immorality, they were tearing the world apart. And God says, if that's really what you want, if you want to destroy the world, then I'll give you what you want. I'll hand you over to it. And not only is hell a power at work in our world, but can we just be honest and say hell is a power at work in us too? The Bible is actually pretty clear on this point. The place where it's the most clear, you can write this down, is James chapter 3, verse 6, where James talks about the destructive power of the tongue. Proverbs says that our words can build others up or it can tear them down. And James starts riffing off of that idea. And he says, he says, your tongue, your destructive words, they're like a fire. They will destroy you and everyone around you if you don't bridle it. And he goes on to say that your tongue is a fire. In the very end of that verse, we can kind of skim over it. He says, your tongue is a fire set on fire by hell. Whoa. Whoa. That's not the way I think about my behavior when I'm not being honoring with my words to others. How about you? And so Tim Mackey beautifully says that God is more committed to getting the hell out of his world than we often are. God is deeply committed to getting the hell, the destruction, the powers that want to destroy. He is so committed to unrooting that so that creation can be restored. And he's more committed to getting the hell out of our world, the hell out of you, the hell out of me, even than we are. Think about Jesus in the Beatitudes. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, you shouldn't lust after another person in your heart. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, you shall not harbor anger or hatred in your heart. So friends, I hope the picture that's forming for you is this God who loves us so much that he gives so many abundant opportunities. He, he's not quick to anger and slow to love. No, the scriptures describe him as being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We are the ones who are quick to anger and slow to love. Can I get an amen or an ouch or something? I mean, like, think about your week. Think about the last time somebody just like ticked you off and how quick you were to anger and frustration with them. We're quick to anger and slow to love. God is slow to anger. He's patient, but he's also good and just, and he will not let injustice go unpunished. And so that's the judgment. Look at verse 23 with me to see the baptism. We're going to start talking about this idea of baptism in the text here. It's subtle and it's soft here because it gets developed as the scriptures go on, okay? So this is chapter 7, verse 23. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left 
and those who were with him in the ark. That word left in the Hebrew is literally few. Uh, Peter's going to pick up this same word in a minute when we read 1 Peter here to talk about there were a few who were saved. The literal translation of this word in Hebrew is remnant. So this is the first time that the idea of a remnant shows up in the scriptures, but it certainly will not be the last time. And this theme gets picked up of a small group, a remnant who are saved by going through the flood waters of judgment. Think of the Exodus, Israel's in slavery and God delivers them through all these plagues, right? Which in essence is like, you know, hey, Pharaoh, you're gonna dish out all this injustice on people. I'm gonna turn your evil back on you, right? That's what God does in his judgment. And then you get to the Red Sea and what does God do? The people are trapped and they're crying out, save us, oh God. And God parts the waters, In Israel, they go through the waters and the waters by going through them become their salvation. But as Egypt and Pharaoh's armies follow after them to destroy them, those same waters become their judgment. The prophets later, as Israel gets into exile, uh, which the whole exile story is another instance that just shows us how God is slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love. He's gracious and compassionate to all. Even that story, God again and again and again and again and again and again and again in the scriptures is saying, don't worship other gods. In Israel, again and again and again and again and again, and again they worship other gods. And God tells them century after century, After century, after century, if you keep this up, you'll go into exile. And then finally, after God's long-suffering patience, they're sent into exile into Assyria, into Babylon. And how do the prophets describe that experience? They talk about it in terms of a flood and in terms of decreation that Israel is being undone in God's judgment, but that there will be a remnant, a small group that God will preserve. And from that remnant will come a man who will crush the head of the snake. Even think of the psalmist. How often do the psalmist, in light of their own suffering, in light of their own trials, They look at their suffering and they say, I'm up to my neck in the floodwaters. The floodwaters are rising. Deliver me, oh God, deliver me. And that is the context that Peter picks up in 1 Peter. The church is being persecuted for doing good. And Peter even says, "Don't, don't go about getting persecuted for doing bad. That's not good for the gospel. (laughs) If you're going to get persecuted, Peter says, get persecuted for doing good. And then look at 1 Peter with me, chapter 3, starting in verse 18. This is fascinating. It's almost like Peter's giving us a commentary on Genesis 6 and 7. So listen to what he says. Remember, the church is being persecuted. They're suffering. For Christ, verse 18, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 
Isn't that beautiful? Like the language, just the truth of it. This is good news for those of us who are suffering. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You're like, all right, Peter, you're encouraging the suffering. This is good. This is great. Where are you going to go next? You going to apply it a little more intricately and give me some application? Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. (laughs) Didn't see that coming. (laughs) Right? You're like, okay, interesting way to encourage someone, Peter. Verse 20, why? Because they formerly did not obey. So he's talking about the fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6. When, here's God's patience again, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, there's that word few again, that is eight persons were brought safely through water. You're like, okay, I'm kind of jiving with you again now, Peter. And then all of a sudden he's like, water, the flood. That kind of reminds me of baptism. Does that remind any of you of baptism? Like, no, that would never remind me of baptism, right? But that's exactly where he goes. Check out verse 21. Baptism, which by the way, corresponds to this. It's kind of like that. Now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want to be saved? from Satan, sin, and death, you got to be baptized in Christ. Because when you're baptized in Christ, his death becomes your death and his resurrected life becomes your life. And that is the only way to be saved from the coming judgment. And by the way, thinking back to the days of Noah, you know, all those terrifying angels walking around wreaking havoc. Well, check out verse 22. Who has gone, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Woo! Friends, as Jesus's church, there are powers and principalities that are actively trying to ruin your life. We don't think about that as modern people. Probably because it's terrifying, but it's true. There are spiritual realities in this world that wish to harm you, but be encouraged. Jesus has subjected all of those powers to him. You know, again, I think we downplay God's goodness and we upplay our goodness in this whole conversation when the deal is God is about the business of saving us. (laughs) And he's really good at it. He really is. Will we trust him that he's good, that he's loving, that he's just while we wait? And speaking of that and moving on, last of the ABCs, how can we be saved? You need an ark of refuge. You need a baptism through judgment. And finally, you need creation from chaos. We see this in chapter 8, verses 1 to 19. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 8. All right, so 8 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. 
Okay, so this reads odd to us because it's like God remembered, which in our English vernacular, right? If you remember something, that means you did what? You forgot it, right? So we kind of have this image of like the floods going on and the arcs going all over the place and like God's off doing something else. And he's like, oh yeah, Noah's still here. Let me go check in with him. How you doing, buddy? Right? That's not, that's not what's happening here. So to an ancient Israelite and even in the, the dynamics of the Hebrew here, the word remember doesn't have the connotation of forgetting. It has the connotation of bringing something to mind. And most often this specific word is used in terms of covenants. So it's bringing to mind, calling to mind God's covenant promise with Noah. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. I'm going to try and make this quick, but I think it'll be helpful. So uh, this whole flood narrative is a chiastic structure. If you've ever heard the word chiastic structure or chiasm, it's a literary device that's employed often by Jewish authors. Uh, and it's this idea that you have bookends, of two similar ideas, and then you kind of have another similar idea, another similar idea, a mirrored idea, a mirrored idea with a pinnacle idea at the very top. It's kind of like the peak of the mountain. It's like, here's the main point. So what's the chiasm here? In the simplest terms, in chapter six and at the end of chapter eight, there's this chiasm that every person's heart followed and every intention of every person's heart was wicked. So that's the bookends, that wickedness is rampant. Do you know what the pinnacle is? It's this verse. God remembered his promises to Noah. God remembers. And did you notice the new creation language in there? That as God remembers, he does what? He sends a wind to blow over the waters to divide the waters. What does that remind you of? Anything? Genesis chapter one, verse two, right? That in the beginning, the earth was formless and void and the spirit of God hovered over the waters and creation began. You might be thinking, wait a minute, this says wind and not water. Well, in the Hebrew, wind, water, and breath are all the same word. They only had one word for those things. Uh, the Hebrew word is ruach. I would invite you now to put your hand in front of your mouth and say with me, Ruach. Get that guttural in there. Not everybody did it. What did you feel when you did that? Your breath. That's right. Isn't that cool? Wind, breath, spirit. So there's this idea, even in verses 1 to 19, a lot of rabbinic scholars have like totally geeked out on this section, and they've pointed out how there's allusions to day one, two, three, four, five, six of creation, all the way up to the ark resting on Mount Ararat, mirroring the seventh day of rest. So you can go home and try to find all the Easter eggs of where the six days of creation are in there. But the point is that God is basically enacting creation 2.0 here. He even gives them in verses 16 to 17, he gives them the commission again. Go, Noah and your family, be fruitful and multiply. It's time to be a new Adam. It's time to partner together. New creation. Now, I want to focus in in our last remaining moments on verses 6 to 12. I'm not going to read all of them. We'll get to 12 in a second here. 
But I, I want to point this out in that God remembers his promises. He starts to fulfill his promises, but let's just be reminded that God's promises often take a long time to be fulfilled. Do you remember what happens there? In 6 to 12, Noah sends out a raven, and the raven doesn't come back. That's interesting. Levitical law tells us ravens are unclean animals. And then he sends out a dove. Levitical law tells us those are clean animals, right? So in the same way that these unclean and clean animals are going in, now they're going out. So God is, he's starting to keep his promise to Noah. So he sends out this raven, it doesn't come back. He sends out a dove, it comes back, but it doesn't have anything. And so he like sends it out again, it comes back with a branch. And then, you know, so what's like, what's going on here? Well, Noah's in a sense testing, like, God, are you really fulfilling your promises? Is the land really getting dry? Is, is, are these floodwaters going to remain forever? And look at verse 12 with me. Genesis chapter 8, verse 12 says this, then he, Noah, waited. So the bird comes back with the branch. He waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. This is the first time in the Bible that a person waits on the Lord, but it certainly will not be the last time. Get the, get the picture here in the flood narrative. God says judgment is coming, and then he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And now, Noah, who has been rescued, he waits. The promise is being fulfilled, but it's not completely fulfilled. God waits. Noah waits. So the question is, will we wait? As you come in here this morning and you think about the parts of your life that feel like they are falling apart, you think about your finances that feel like you're drowning and it's a flood that's overcoming you. You think about maybe the brokenness in your marriage. Maybe you have estranged children that you wish that they would be back in relationship with you. Maybe there's friendships where you've done everything you can to restore those relationships, but you just can't seem to get it together. Maybe you're suffering in your health. Maybe you're drowning in your addictions. What are the floodwaters that are rising up to your neck this morning? What are the floods where you cry out for deliverance and God still hasn't done it? And you say, Lord, make it better. Deliver me, O oh God. And yet you find yourself waiting. If anything, friends, this flood passage, as odd as it sounds, is actually meant to be an encouragement to all of us that God is about his business of preserving and rescuing those who are his. And he also is about his business of bringing justice where injustice has been done. And yet he does not do this in a way that is quick to anger, but in a way that gives everyone time to repent.
So friends, will you wait on the Lord? And while you wait, will you trust his goodness? Will you trust his love? Will you trust his justice? As we wrap up here today, we can't not think about Jesus when talking about this topic. Because Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we should have lived, he went to a cross and died the death that we should have died. And what happened on that cross? The Father's judgment poured out like a flood onto Jesus. And Jesus died once for sins, all of the sins of the world. Can you imagine, can you imagine the weight of that judgment? And Jesus died for you and for me. But that was not the end of the story because he also rose from the dead. And now, friends, when we talk about the ABCs of salvation, you need an ark and his name is Jesus. (laughs) You need a baptism and his name is Jesus. And you need to become a new creation. And guess what? That new creation's name is Jesus. Because he is the first fruits of all creation. And one day, Jesus will return and every single person who has ever lived will stand before the judgment throne of Jesus. And we will have to give an account. And in essence, God will say, why should I accept you? And we will realize in that moment that the real question about God's judgment is not how could something like a flood happen, but the real question about God's judgment is how can a just God forgive sinners? And when we stand before Jesus, The only hope we have is not to point to ourselves, not to point to what we have done, but to point back to Jesus and to say, I hid my life in you. You're my ark. My life has been baptized in your death, in your burial, in your resurrection. And you have made me a new creation. Saved from death, reborn to a new purpose. Pray with me, friends. God, we thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. Lord Jesus, we are deeply in need of saving. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to not downplay your goodness and not elevate ours, but help us to be real with ourselves that we are deeply and dearly loved by you and we also rebel and choose false gods over you all the time. And you, Lord, are patient and compassionate to receive us every time we turn around. I pray, Lord, that every person in this room today would repent and turn to you in whatever way they need to. And would we find you to be who you are, a good, loving, and just God. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.